Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay, on, lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchids, orchards, or, yep, And I planted, I know he did this, I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained within me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on all the labor on which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. This is the word of God. It's for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, Father, thank you this morning for um, maybe something we wouldn't want to think about naturally, just some of the hard truths of life. And so, God, as we start to consider some of the low, difficult realities today of the world we live in, I pray that you would use it to lift our spirits to hope in you. God, as we're here to hear from you, um, I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit so that that could happen. 
I, I surrender all my preparation, the best of it, the worst of it, and I ask that you would use it for your glory. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, kind of familiar to last week, getting to know the author of this book, following his tone and the way that he writes and what he writes about. Um, as we get into this next passage this morning, I would like to start by giving you the title of my message. So the title of what I'd like to preach on today from this passage is The Research for Satisfaction. The Research for Satisfaction. And if you notice there, it's kind of a play on words. We're having fun today, all right? The research, search is the key word there, for satisfaction. Uh, Once again, in this passage of Scripture, we are introduced to who is the main voice of the book of Ecclesiastes. He is a character who is self-described there in verse 12 as, did you see it? The preacher. I, the preacher. We see it also in verse 1 of that same chapter. It tells us that the book of Ecclesiastes is the very words of this mysterious Preacher. That word preacher is one who assembles a crowd to communicate a message. It's not necessarily someone on some Christian network asking for your money or, or even someone that you're listening to right now in church. I'm not asking for your money. Don't confuse those, okay? But nonetheless, this preacher, he is this character who has something to say and he's gathering people around him to listen to his message. Now, When you begin to look at the description of this character, this preacher, um, the potential figures of who it could be narrows down to how many? One. (laughs) There's only been one son of David who was king over all of Israel in Jerusalem who had such great wisdom as a preacher that, that other nations would flock to hear his teachings. We learned last week, even, even his teachings about fish and trees. Who, want, who, who doesn't want to hear a good teaching on a ficus tree, you know? I mean, he had a lot to say about everything. That's what it tells us. And, and there's only one person that matches this description, and it is the one and only, the great King Solomon. King Solomon. Now, what's particularly interesting about King Solomon in the introduction of him here is, you know, there's a lot of different ways and characteristics of Solomon that we get in this book. I mean, the first thing we see there in verse 12, it's that he's a man of royalty, right? It says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. That's verse 12. He's a man of royalty. And though that is true, here's what's interesting. That's not the main message and characteristic about Solomon here. Certainly is a man of royalty, but that's not the only thing we get. Uh, Another thing we see about him is that he's a man of renown. He's a man of great fame. People would flock to hear what he had to say. People would travel, um, you know, by foot. They they wouldn't, you know, be able to book a ticket back then, so they would go on foot long distances just to hear this guy teach. But even that, even that characteristic of Solomon is not how he's described here. Not just a man of royalty, nor just a man of renown, but here, Solomon, the main voice of this book, is depicted to us as a man of research. <laughs> I love it. Kind of like, you know, royalty, renown. I'm a researcher, you know. Research. A man of research. Do you, do you see it there in verse 13? Solomon says this, he says, as the king who is renowned, who is royal, who is known by all, verse 13, read it again, it says, he sets his heart 
to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. Solomon's a researcher here. It's interesting to see this side of him. Um, as this person who is investigating, a person who is looking into something. Now, all of our friend groups has that one researcher. We all got the researcher. In my household, it's my wife. I am certainly not the researcher. Um, I show up and discover how bad the meal was or how bad the movie was, you know. Uh, But especially in the day and age of iPhones, everybody's a genius, And everybody has all the information on what's true or what isn't or what's insightful or what what that actor was really in. Like, like, uh, I think a good practice that I would like to see us um, go about more is, you ever been in that situation where you're trying to figure out the name of the movie, right, or the actor or their face, and the natural tendency is just to pull out, we're so dependent here, Siri, hi, personal assistant, all right, or hi, Google, can you give me the, or whatever you weird Android people use, right, like... You, you try to go for that, that resource of research to get the information. I mean, we're so quick to that. But here's Solomon. That, that's not his method in gathering research. He's going by wisdom. He's exploring with intellect. He's, he's a man of research. Which, ladies, I just want to say that that's a, that's a good characteristic in a man. I just want, this is extra, okay? Extra for you. God bless you, all right? A man of research. There's a lot to be said there, right? Like, you know, hey, what restaurant do you want to go to? And he goes, hold on, let me look it up. You know, it's like, wow. You you mean you weren't just going to get in the car and go wherever the wind takes us? That's a good thing. Now, I also want to say too much research can be creepy. If he, like, knows your middle name and it's the first time you met him, like, oh, maybe back off. All right. But a man of research. We kind of see this eligible bachelor a bit here in Solomon. What a remarkable character. He's inquisitive. He's intelligent. He's certainly Wise. Now, let's focus for a second here on the focus of his research. He tells us that the focus of his research is all things that are being done under heaven. That's the focus of his research. It says in verse 13 again that he set his heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. In the previous poem that we read last week, this same realm that he's researching is called under the sun. It's a phrase used over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the focus and this is the context and the world of Solomon's research. His research when it comes to the things of life does not involve God and eternity whatsoever. This is a research project that is focused on life without God, life without the eternal. It's been said that Solomon here in Ecclesiastes is adopting even the worldview, sort of exploring and testing the worldview of a secular humanist. He's thinking through, well, what would life be like? I'm going to research. Let's research for a second. All that's done in life if God didn't exist. Let's research for a second all that my life is for if there is no eternity. If for a second, as he says in the previous verse, the sun rises and the sun sets before and after I die and the world keeps turning, if that's all it is, is a short blip of a life, then what does it all mean? That is the focus of Solomon's research. So much so that you could say that the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's research paper. I mean, this whole book is what he has 
uncovered. And as we looked last week, it can be narrowed down to one singular message that he repeats here in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says, in my research, verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, without God, without eternity in mind, look what he says, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. All is vanity. We looked at this remarkable word last week. This is the results of his research. Uh, the results, Solomon goes, here's what I found. It's funny that this is in the Bible, right? You came here this morning for an uplifting message. And here's what an author of the Bible has to say about your life and my life. It's worth nothing. Amen? You know? Yeah, I think so, right? Or no? Like, we're, we're kind of like taken back a little bit by that kind of response. But let's unpack this for a second. Let's get to the bottom of what Solomon is saying. In the results of his research, he says, all, notice there at the end of verse 14, all is vanity grasping for the wind. Vanity, this word in Hebrew, is hevel. It means a wisp of vapor or a cloud of smoke. Now, when you study the life of Solomon, what you learn is that he's learning this from firsthand experience. He has, in his own life, attempted to reach out in a season of life where he created God as kind of an optional character. He kind of said, okay, God, you go over there for a second. And in Solomon's life without God, he has sought to grab onto some substantial fulfillment in his life. He has sought to grab onto some real satisfaction. And what he says here is that in his research, what he's found is every time he reaches out in life to grab a handful of substance and meaning without God, it's like trying to grab a handful of smoke. It just sort of goes right through his fingers. He says it's all hevel. It's all hevel. It's a wisp of vapor. It's a cloud of smoke. Notice how he describes it. It's like grasping, verse 14 at the end, grasping for the wind. Grasping for the wind. Isn't that interesting? This is going to be a phrase, as you see up there, that's, that Solomon's going to use nine times in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a phrase that describes a life trying to lay hold on meaning, a purpose, and meaning and purpose apart from God. Maybe you know what that feels like firsthand. You're constantly reaching out for fulfillment. You're constantly reaching out to this thing or that thing to give you this ultimate satisfaction that you were made for. And you're left empty-handed. Solomon says it's like grasping for the wind. It's reaching out and being left empty-handed. Now, now that is the focus of his research and the results of his research. But what we really have to focus on in this passage this morning is what's interesting. It's, it's the method of his research. That's what really this passage mostly deals with. Uh, not just what Solomon was looking into and not just what he found, but the way in which he came to that conclusion. And, and what's really interesting about the method of Solomon's research is that it's the best kind of research that uh, really anybody can get. It's the best kind of wisdom that anybody can gain, and it's the wisdom that comes from firsthand experience. How many of us know that there's a big difference between life experience and book smarts? We know that, right? It's one thing to know something. It's a whole other thing for life to teach you something. And Solomon's coming at this approach. His research is, is done. The method of his research is done with firsthand personal experience. In fact, again in verse 13, you see the two words that he uses there to describe his research? He says, I set my heart to do two things. He says, to seek and to search. These two Hebrew words are really remarkable. 
Solomon says, when, when you look at the method of my research, I'm doing two things. Here's how I'm conducting my research. Okay, so we got like investigative journalist Solomon here. All right. And here he is. And Solomon, you, you could picture in his mind, he's like that character that's almost in every movie. It's that journalist character. Every movie has one. And they knock on the door of the house that no one's visited in 20 years. And they say, is so-and-so here? And they say, yes, why, right? You seen this movie version, right? And then they say, Google, I just want to ask you some questions. It's that, okay? All right. Just had to paint that whole hypothetical situation for no reason, actually. Let's just keep going, all right? Solomon goes, as I've researched, I've done two things. I've sought and I've searched. The word seek there in Hebrew is to inquire, to consult, or to find out. How many of you guys are, are kind of the person that, that you're the quickest and the first to usually ask the question? Any question askers in here? That was me. That's my son Judah for sure. He gets that from his dad. You know, inquisitive, we would say. Inquiring, consulting. That's what Solomon's doing. He's asking. He's consulting through wisdom these really deep questions about life. But this other word that he uses is so significant. He says, I'm also searching. And this Hebrew word means to explore, to investigate on foot, and to spy out. That's awesome. So you have investigative journalist Solomon, but you also have, like, detective Solomon. He's investigating on foot, trying to get down to the bottom of what is life all about. I mean, this is someone you could really learn from. I mean, this is good, right? To ask questions, to take the test, to get 100 is good. But to be someone who Solomon would say, you can walk in my shoes, I've been there. I've investigated, I've researched this firsthand on foot, which makes a lot of sense as to why he is doing so in his wisdom. His wisdom, in many ways, is not the byproduct of study, it's the byproduct of living. And he says, I've learned in, in, into this place of wisdom. Now, uh, that's Solomon's method. As Solomon pursues this method, what we get to watch from him is we get to see his research. Okay, you get it now? All right, it's good. It's a fun little pun. All right. The research for satisfaction. He goes, my research was my own search. How many of us have a testimony like that, by the way? Like, here's what I know about God. Here, let me tell you about my research. Let me tell you about what I searched for, what I sought after, what I was looking for. Let me tell you about how in my own life I've reached the same conclusion as Solomon. In all my searching, my heart was never satisfied. That's Solomon's own testimony. And that's the method, again, of his research. And here's what we get from Solomon. We already read it there, right? But what we get from Solomon is we get these five pursuits that Solomon himself explored in his own research for real satisfaction. Five pursuits that Solomon researched for his own satisfaction. I want to say this about these pursuits that we're going to look at. We already read them. These pursuits, in and of themselves, are not bad things. That's kind of, I think, a danger we can have in the church is um, because people tend to idolize things, we can sort of like demonize things. Do you know what I'm saying? And so you have whole legalistic movements in the church that are over-responses to idolatry. And sometimes, that, sometimes God calls for that sense of radical repentance. Uh, but, but we need to see that these things that Solomon mentions, they're, they're good things. There's nothing wrong, we'll say, you know, we'll say it this way, like for example, for being ambitious in a Christ-centered way. Like that's a good thing. So the goal is not to walk away from here today like, oh, i got to quit my job, it's all meaningless. Like, all right, we don't, we don't want to go there. Um, but what we do want to recognize is this. That there's this subtle tendency, listen, for the good things in our life 
to become bad things when they become God things. I, I wrote it this way. You can understand it, that when good things become God things, they can become bad things. When a good relationship becomes everything to you and it is your saving grace, that becomes a bad thing. And here's, here's the way that we could frame it. It's, it's anything that you look at and you say, man, if only I blank, if only I this, then I'd really be satisfied. That can be a corrupter of good things. Maybe it's a gift you have. You have this skill. You have this passion for something. Maybe it's a desire you have. You go, man, I want to be in a relationship. I want to get married. I want to have kids. Maybe it's a desire to be in ministry. Maybe it's a, a pastime and a hobby that you enjoy. There's nothing wrong, listen, with those things in and of themselves. But if they're what fills your blank, if only I blank, then I would really be satisfied. What Solomon would submit to us that we are going to find ourselves pretty empty-handed. Like grasping for the wind. Let's look at these different pursuits and let's see if they can resonate with some of us. The first pursuit that Solomon describes in his own exploration and his own research for real satisfaction is what we'll call attainment. This is the pursuit of knowing. This is probably our, our, our culture's, one of our culture's most popular pursuits for fulfillment. Attainment, the pursuit of knowing. And that word attaining, to attain knowledge, it's actually used there in verse 16. Look down at verse 16. He says, I communed with my heart. I just love that Solomon is talking to himself this whole book and it's totally normal, right? I was then talking to myself that one day, verse 16. I communed with my heart and notice this. Look, I have, here it is, attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. Solomon says, listen, I've done my research and let me tell you, if you're looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in knowledge, if anyone has tried that and even has been somewhat successful at that, Psalm would say, it's going to be me. I attained such greatness of wisdom, we learned and we already talked about, that even people, would just all they wanted to do was flock to hear what he had to say. Such great wisdom. Now Solomon, in his pursuit of knowing, he reached what could be called, let's say, the highest caliber of intellectualism. The highest level of intelligence. Not only because, did you read it there in verse 16? Not only because he was, I love this, you know, total like humble brag, right? I was more wise than anybody else before me. It's like, how smart are you? I mean, I don't really know how, I don't, you know, I don't want to brag, but smarter than anyone who's ever lived. It's like, oh, he's pretty smart, you know? Wiser than anybody else before me. But that's not just what quantifies Solomon's height of intellectualism. Notice verse 16 at the end there. It, it describes what is actually, I, I would call it almost the trifecta of intellectualism. He says, my heart has understood, notice three things, understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. You see those three words there? This is sort of like the trinity of knowledge in Scripture, the trifecta of intellectualism. Uh, Solomon says, not only did I know some things, but I also understood some things. There's a big difference between knowing, uh-huh, yeah, I know that, and understanding, I get it. And even wisdom, I know what to do with it, right? So, so Solomon says, I possess all three of those attributes. We see it even in Proverbs 2 and 6. It tells us, for the Lord gives wisdom, there's wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understandings, the intellectual trifecta, Solomon perfected, 
the trifecta, okay? He was a man of all three. Now, to characterize these a little bit more, if you're still a little bit confused, here's how we can understand this. Uh, it, it can be understood this way. Knowledge, when you have knowledge, it means you know what. Okay, so you're the one who's like, what movie is that? You're like, knowledge, all right? It's like Ty Lopez, knowledge, right? But anyway, understanding knows why. I, I, sometimes I use these references and like three, how many of you guys know who Ty Lopez is? I'm just curious. Three, four, okay, see, now we're getting, now we know what we're talking about, okay. Just splitting the generations in the room. Okay, um, let's move on. Knowledge knows what. Understanding, it's when you know something. Understanding knows why. Knows why. And wisdom knows how. So an example of this would be like, for example, you know, a guitar. A guitar, okay? I know what a guitar is. Proud of me? Right? All right, I, I know what it is. I can tell you what it is. It is a musical instrument that, when strummed, performs music. Now, if you were to say, why does it make music? I would say, because noise is a thing, okay? Now, there's some probably music theory students in here. We know certainly we have some, some musicians. They could give you a little bit more detail as to the understanding of the what. Here, here's why a guitar works. Here's what acoustic is. And here's what happens to the strings. And they get smaller and therefore higher pitches. Look at me. Come on, all of a sudden now, right? All right, but after understanding needs to come wisdom. Now, say I come up here and I go, man, I can tell you everything about a guitar and why it works. And then you say, well, can you play? I say, mm-mm, right? Garage band, quite proficient, right? My son's got the app. I play it at home. But there's a big difference between knowing what, knowing why, and knowing how. You see the idea here? Knowledge knows what, understanding knows why, wisdom knows how, and Solomon possessed all three of these attributes of knowledge. He was a man who knew what, all the what's of life. He was a man who understood the whys of life. And he was a man, we see it even in the narratives of his, of his season as king over Israel, we see him implement that knowledge with great skill in his ability to solve some disputes, to discern between right and wrong. There was no shortage in Solomon's life when it came to knowledge. But in all of that, verse 17, I set my heart to know knowledge, to know madness and folly, Yet he says, and I perceived, notice this, that this also is grasping for the wind. Isn't that interesting? Solomon goes, I've learned more than anyone has ever learned. I have reached the highest height of intellectualism, and with all that I have learned, I am still not satisfied. What a counter-contradictory message in the face of our culture that says the more you know, the more you study, the more degrees you have, the more you'll be satisfied. But listen, the truth is not found there. How many of us have found ourselves in a position where we've said this before? Man, if I only knew. You ever said this? How about this? If I only knew then what I know when. Man, I wish I could talk to 21-year-old Andrew. Mm. I wish I could talk to yesterday, Andrew. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been tempted this way since, um, since starting the church, and this was a learning experience. Um, you know, it's my first time doing this, starting a church. And, and so um, 
there's been multiple times looking back going, man, if, if I just knew then what I know now, X, y, the temptation there. And you know what, here's what I noticed though. I'm going to be saying that in five years. Anybody found that? I'm really only as smart as I was a second ago. <laughs> if I only, when has that actually ever saved us? Solomon's saying, look, don't put all of your stock in what you can know. Now, again, this is not a bad thing. He'll write in Proverbs, get knowledge, get understanding. We're here right now. You're like, it'd be kind of contradictory if knowledge had no purpose, because right now you're knowing something as I'm teaching. It's like, Andrew, well, what, why are you teaching knowledge? You're like, I now know that I don't need to know. Okay, So, so we're not, it's not void in and of itself, but what Solomon is saying is don't place your hope in knowledge as being your salvation. It won't do the trick. In fact, here's what he says about knowledge. Here's what he says. He says in verse 16, for in much wisdom, the, the, actual, the opposite happens. Not ultimate happiness, but in much wisdom, here's what he says, you'll find much grief. Isn't that interesting? In, look at this. He who increases knowledge actually increases sorrow. Two renowned secular humanists known as Albert Einstein and Bertrand Russell said this, we have found that the men who know most are the most gloomy. You ever been in a situation like that where like, you're like, no, I don't want to know. I just don't want to know. Keep it to yourself because it seems like when it comes to life, the enemy has this way to, tr- to twist that God sort of wired desire to learn and know. And the enemy can take that and abuse it and lead us to dark and difficult places, lead us to depressed places. You increase knowledge, but you don't increase fulfillment, you increase depression. Think about that. Knowledge is a faulty savior. Jesus won't do that to you, can I say? The more you get to know him, the more joy-filled you are. You're not left low, you're left brought higher. So that's that first pursuit that Solomon gives us, the pursuit of knowing. Now, he, he goes on to the pursuit of feeling. We'll call this amusement. If knowing isn't enough, I've got to feel some things. Maybe if I can experience some things, maybe if I can experience enough amusement, maybe then I will find the meaning of life. Maybe then I will be satisfied. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with mirth. So you see the test he's putting his life through? I love the way he's writing this there. He's like, okay, well, let's try this now. Knowledge doesn't do the trick. The more you know, the sadder you are, actually. Let's try amusement. Let's try pleasure. Let's pursue a feeling. And he said, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, also enjoy pleasure. In verse 3, it says, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine. So Solomon has within his reach um, every imaginable resource for amusement. He, he's like an American, okay? Um, Solomon has access, we see it here in these two verses, to amusement of the heart and amusement of the flesh. Amusement of the heart, he uses this word mirth. Mirth. He talks about searching in his heart. He talks about filling his life with mirth, which is, uh, this word mirth, it means joyful gladness or happiness or laughter. By the way, I love a good laugh, okay? Scriptures teach that laughter is medicine. Medicine. Now, that's one avenue of Solomon's approach to this, is, is sort of experiencing joy in life and festivity and party. 
The other avenue of amusement is amusement of the flesh. He says, I even tried to gratify my flesh with every sort of lustful desire out there. And there are many here that Solomon, it's like he chose to keep it PG or something. He, he, he leaves out a few, a couple thousand, if you know what I'm saying. Concubines, if you know what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> Solomon is being somewhat discreet. And he's saying, I, I've tried it all. I, he says, I, I've tried to gratify my flesh with wine. Now, he's going to go on to say, there's nothing like a good glass of wine. But here he's talking about wine being the thing that sort of, again, that medicating experience to give me what I'm ultimately looking for. And, and with, again, this pursuit of amusement, it says this, again, I was left in this place of vanity, verse 1. I said of laughter, I love this. He sounds just like a grumpy old man. I said of laughter, madness. Madness. Okay. Think about that. And of mirth, what does it accomplish? In other words, listen, not that in and of itself laughter is a bad thing, not that in and of itself enjoying the pleasures that God has given us in life are a bad thing, but again, when those bad things become God things and I sacrifice my whole being, my whole identity, my whole relationships for that thing, to give me what only God can, I am crushing myself. It's vanity. It's vanity. Now, again, this is another kind of counter message into a culture that lives for the amusement park lifestyle. And don't get me wrong, I love the amusement park. But I, I know what's really going on when I get to the happiest place on earth. Okay? Just yesterday... You know, you can't get to Disney. They bring, it, they bring Disney to you. We went to Disney on ice yesterday with all three kids. Bringing the one-year-old was not a good idea, but um, she could care less. Um, but amusement park, and we're there to be amused, and we're there to enjoy. And it's interesting. Here we are, the happy, Disney's now on ice, happiest place here now in Plantation. And, and in front of me, I'm distracted from the show because a mom fight is about to break out. Moms, and you know, with moms, you know they're about to fight because they put their baby down, you know? It's like, <laughs> all right? Like, it, this lady almost put her baby down, okay? <laughs> to be amused. It was all about getting into her proper seat. Isn't it? Come on, you've rode those Disney trams. You stood in those lines. The happiest place on earth, <laughs> okay? Amusement. But listen, what a great picture that Solomon is even painting for us for, for how we try to navigate our lives in this fantasy world of amusement. Some of us, we live an amusement park lifestyle. We turn a blind eye to all the pains that we face. We never deal with the real roots of our problems. We don't repent. We don't confess. We don't cry out for help. We just amuse ourselves to death. Another Netflix show, another substance, another drink, another social outing. I just need to smile. I just need to be happy. And Solomon would say, though happiness can be a gift from God, happiness will not save you. The American dream is a lie. There's a better way, Solomon would say. Not to just amuse yourself to death. Not to just go from one thing to the next, but to face your pain head on. To rejoice in times of rejoicing. We're going to talk about that next week. But also to learn to weep when you need to cry. Like, I, I, I just got to rant for a second. 
I fear so much about where church is going these days, where it's all about happiness on Sunday morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Are you happy? How do you feel this morning? It's like, you know what? Pretty bad. You know, it's like we can't touch most of the scriptures in the Bible, which are just like, hey, today's a sad day. And today, listen, and this is the, the culture of America creeping into the church where because all we know how to do is be amused and amuse people, we don't deal with our own pain and problems. And listen, we're left unable to help anyone else when they come to us with their issues. Hey, I'm hurting. And instead of being able to comfort them with the comfort I receive from God, we just try to distract them from their pain. Jesus, can I tell you, Jesus is so much deeper than that. He's so much better than that. Jesus is so good that he would rather you come to church depressed than fake a smile. Did you know that? Can we be a kind of, a kind of gathering, a kind of community that actually lives that way? That we, don't, you know, I'm going to ask you how you're doing, but don't give me a sad answer. You're going to kill my vibe, right? We're all about vibes. It's all about vibes. And Solomon goes, vibes are overrated. <laughs> it's the truth that matters. Solomon goes, I've tried attainment, it's the pursuit of knowledge. I've tried amusement, the pursuit of feeling. If I, here's what this says, if I only felt, now let's, let's kind of put this home. So, so where, to, where right now are you looking to feeling and experience to give you what only God can? Is it sin? Is it pornography? It could be a sexual addiction. It could be a substance addiction. It could be a relational, social addiction. So, so look at your life. What fills in that blank? If I only felt this or that, then I would be satisfied. Solomon would say, I've been there. I've researched. Don't do it. It's vain. And then he goes on from there to this third pursuit. We'll call it accomplishment. This is the pursuit of doing. It tells us in verse 4, Solomon goes on to his next pursuit that he's explored. He goes, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens. I get a second try at this word, and orchards. And I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. Like Solomon gets some respect from the dads in the room. You know what I'm saying? This guy set up that irrigation system. Wow. On his own, too. Now, he might have hired, you know, some lawn care specialist to show up and do it himself. But, you know, shout out to the dads that are laboring away at their sprinkler system, trying to turn that dead grass green again. Anyway, Solomon is giving his resume of all that he has accomplished. Do you see it there? And he's being kind of modest. I mean, when you really look, go and you see that today you can go to Israel and visit all the different things that Solomon has produced in his lifetime. He even talks about these pools that he created. I mean, wow, this is a man of great accomplishment. He has done a few things. Notice the key word there from 4 all the way down to verse 6. Over and over again, I think it's six times there, he says, I, I made, I did, I created, I accomplished. Solomon says, hey, I've gone the route of trying to accomplish my way into fulfillment. And he says again, in all that I've done, it was never enough to give me what only God could. Doing, doing. Uh, ask ourselves this question this morning. For you, what is the thing that if you only did it, if you only accomplished it, then you would be 
satisfied. Some of you right now, as a contrast to the last thing we studied about sin, you're going right now, man, if I only stop sinning, then I would be satisfied. Nope. Some of you might be lost in your licentiousness. Some of you might be lost in your carnality. A lot of you are lost in your legalism. A lot of you are lost not in your badness, but in your goodness. And your identity and your fulfillment is in what you do, what you do for God, how good you don't do those sins, which is the ugliest sin of all. So, so what is it for you? If I only did, I mean, maybe it's not that, maybe it's something else. I mean, think about your life. Is it a vocational accomplishment? What, what is that thing? What is that thing you're chasing? Now, again, we, we want to make sure we, we point out the fact Solomon's going to talk a lot about our work, Christ-centered ambition. It's a good thing. But what accomplishment are you tying your fulfillment to? I'm reminded of, of um, a polarizing figure, but uh, I'm reminded of Tom Brady. After Tom Brady won his first Super Bowl, he was being interviewed on CBS, and when they asked him, how does it feel? I mean, I mean, Tom, you've accomplished the dream that you've set your whole life to. How does it feel? And Tom Brady, paraphrasing Tom Brady's response, he said this. He said, when I got here, here's what I said to myself. Is this it? I mean, my whole life I glamorized winning a Super Bowl, and I finally won the Super Bowl, and now I feel like I just need to win another one. Isn't that kind of how accomplishment works? Isn't, it's a mirage, isn't it? I chase it, I chase it, I chase it. Now it's good to have that motive. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Matthew McConaughey. He gave an Oscars speech after winning a reward, and he talks about in his life always chasing the future version of himself. But Solomon is saying this, for what ultimate purpose? To what end? You die and then what? He'll say, stark things like that. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I felt that way for a long time. It was like the thing that I knew God put me on earth to do was start a church. And, you know, when you talk about starting a church, it's cool, you know. <laughs> you know, and you feel, you're like, people say, what do you do? Like, I'm a church, and it just sounds cool, a church planter. It just sounds like you know what you're talking about. And, and forever, it was like, that was my dream. I grew up in a church where I had these images of success. And if I get to this platform, and I have this many people, and, Remember, 22, 23 years old. Just, God, please, you know, and some of the, you know, a lot of sincere stuff there. God, would you use me? I want to serve you. And then something happened in my life. There was a man who marked the measure of my success, and he was unfaithful in his marriage. And all of his ministry was a covering of accomplishment, covering who he really was. And I said, I don't want that anymore. And God dealt with me. I remember God taking me to 2 Samuel 7, where David says, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, David, I want to build you a house. God, I, I want to accomplish this for you. And sometimes God will get down to the motive of why we're doing it before he even starts to talk to us about what we're going to do. And God dealt with me in that way. Forever, ministry, it can be this accomplishment. It can be this, this target. I'm just confessing for me that I look at it and I go, man, once I, and then I planted a church. Well, God birthed the church. He was faithful. But I sweated a bit in this process. And um, I realized that it's a labor of love. 
I realize that it's something that God does, that he has to do. Uh, the, the point I'm saying is, is there's always that mirage on the horizon that's twinkling, calling for us, lying to us, saying, once you do this, once you do this, maybe it's your business, maybe, maybe you've done it, maybe you go, man, I always wanted to open a business and I did it. Now what? Are you fulfilled? Or is it that metric? Is it that goal? If I only did. Now, Solomon moves from there to the next pursuit, and it's the pursuit of acquirement. If it's not attaining knowledge, if it's not amusement and pleasure, if it's not accomplishment and doing, Solomon goes, okay, well, how about this? Verse 7, I acquired, acquirement, I acquired male and female servants. And I had so many servants for so long that they even had their own, my servants were reproducing. I had servants born in my house. Okay, I was good with my possessions. They were multiplying. I was stewarding them. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I gathered male and female singers. Look at all that he possessed. The delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. Solomon was a man of great possession and he explored the route of, 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 of having stuff. He pursued having stuff. Solomon, the, the wealthiest man in that day, we talked about this last week, silver was obsolete. That's how much gold he had. You know? It's like, nice silver, that's cute, all right? We, we, we do gold around here, all right? A man of great wealth, a man of great acquirement, all that he acquired. Now, we, we start to get introspective again, and we ask this question for you. What is the thing that you're looking to acquire to give you what you're ultimately looking for? It's answering this question, if I only had. And if I only had that, if I only lived there, if I only had that gift, if I only had what that person has, if I only looked like that person, if I only had, Solomon is starting to dismantle this illusion of satisfaction that comes from acquiring things. He goes, I've, I've had it all, and then some, and then some, and still even that was vanity. You know, Jesus speaks to this, doesn't he? In Luke 12, I love what Jesus says in Luke 12. He says, take heed. And beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. What a prophet Jesus was, amen? I mean, before his time even. Speaking into American 21st century culture and saying things like this. Your life is not made up with, of what you have. He'll go on to say, what does it even profit you, like Solomon, to gain the whole world and lose your soul? What does it profit you to work so hard to acquire? And then that's the grind of today. Uh, every every you know, hour I get a new uh, ad on, on Instagram of, of some new hustler, entrepreneur, influencer. I'm here to accomplish so that I can acquire. It's the American lie. That maybe if you get enough followers, maybe if you do enough, you get enough people that like you, that love you, that follow you, you can finally get that thing that everybody on Instagram is saying they have as they hide behind their filter. They don't show you the 10 outtakes of their kids biting each other. <laughs> Everything's filtered. It's all garbage. That was very modest of me, okay, to say it that way. Jesus speaks into that and he says, you're more than what you have, you're more than what you don't have. Some of you, you know what it's like to lose everything. You know, Paul says, he goes, I've had a lot. I've also had a little. He says, but here's what I've learned, the secret to life. 
No matter what I have, my strength doesn't come from what I possess. It comes through Christ. He says, I've found that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My strength, my life, Jesus would say, is not in what I have. It's not in what I don't have. Solomon would say, don't look to what you can have, an acquirement, the pursuit of having to find your fulfillment. And lastly, he closes with achievement. Achievement. This is the pursuit of being. He says there in verse 9, and this is sort of, if you think about it, this is sort of the culmination of all of Solomon's research. I mean, all the things that he was able to attain with knowledge, all of the amusement he was able to experience, all the great things he was able to accomplish in his life, uh, all the great things that he was able to acquire as possessions, it leads him to this life achievement of being someone, this pursuit of identity that he was after. Verse 9, so I became great, he says. I became great. He says, and I excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom remained within me. So here's where Solomon's life gets to. I mean, come on. This is, for a lot of us, this is our Savior. This is what we're ultimately after. We're searching for this sense of, I want to be great. I want my life to count. I want it to matter. I I want to be full. I want to be like Solomon, who became someone. Became someone. For you, let's think about that. If I only was what? What? When will you be fulfilled? When you're what? When you're the perfect wife? Then you can be happy. When you're the perfect husband? When you're the perfect student? When you're the best student? When you are great at business? When you are great at your job? Now, again, none of those things are bad things. Listen to any other sermon I'll preach, and I'll encourage the the right direction of those things. But listen... If achieving some sort of distant identity is your savior, you will never be satisfied. Never. Because, again, the second you become that person, you're going to want to become a different version of that person. I want to become who I was. I want to become, you know, the five-year-from-now version, right? And a lot of us, it's funny how we kind of live with God this way. Like, we can't relate to God unless we are a certain someone. We have this idea that God loves like this future better version of me. And as soon as I become that person, then I can be close to God. Then I can be loved by God. And in all these things, all of the attainment, the amusement, all of the accomplishment and acquirement, even this incredible identity of achievement, here's Solomon's concluding thoughts. Verse 10. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He's kind of summarizing everything he told us. Um, If I saw it, I got it. If my eyes wanted it, they had it. I didn't even withhold my heart from any pleasure. There was no restraint. Solomon goes, "If, if my body craved it, I gave it to my body. I did not withhold my heart from anything it desired. My heart, which the Bible says is deceitful. He says, I rejoiced in my labor and that was my reward. I did some good things, and I rejoiced in it. And from the perspective of a secular humanist who just dies, and that's it, and they go to the grave, and they're dust, and that's it, being happy with your work is the best you get. He goes, and I rejoiced. Verse 11, this is an important word. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and all the labor in which I had toiled, all the efforts I put forth to being satisfied, and indeed all was Vanity and grasping for the wind. 
Solomon goes, I could say it to you a hundred more times in a hundred different ways. But I hope you get the idea that under heaven, apart from God, apart from this eternal realm and reality, life with just you and your pursuits is like reaching for wind and trying to grab substance. It's, it's this emptiness that you can't even explain. It's this emptiness. It's almost like the, the more you fill it, the bigger it gets. Now, as we wrap up here, I want to close by bringing us back to a thought that Solomon makes early on. And we skipped over this. I don't know if you noticed this. But in verse 13, as Solomon is talking about his research of everything under the sun, Solomon rarely does this. But in verse 13, Solomon makes a theological observation. A theological, a God-centered observation about the meaninglessness of life. Look at what he says. He says, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. Notice this. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men. That they might be exercised by it or preoccupied with it. Solomon says, it's a burdensome task to this life. Like, even right now, if I were just to end the message here, oh my gosh, what a joy killer, right? Buzzkill, let's pray, you know? It's like, okay, you know? It's all vanity. Solomon says it's a burdensome task going through this life like that. Another translation says, unhappy business. <laughs> What's life without God? It's unhappy business. And he, and he says, that preoccupation, which is what life is, life, the longer you live, it's a preoccupation, apart from God, it's a preoccupation with unhappiness and dissatisfaction. But he says, God did that. God did that. This preoccupation with unhappiness was given to the sons of men by God. Wait, so you mean to tell me, Solomon, that God has built meaninglessness into the system? Now, that's pretty depressing, you know? I mean, that's even more depressing. I just said everything's meaningless, and I said it's because of God. Like, okay. I mean, you even look at what he goes on to say. What is crooked, verse 15, cannot be made straight. What is lacking can't be numbered. God made things as crooked as they are. It's kind of what it looks like he's saying. Now, Paul, in Romans 8, I want you to see this. Paul unpacks what Solomon is saying in Romans 8. And he makes a theological almost fulfillment of this. He says this, Paul in Romans 8. This is, by the way, um, one of the few, I think there's two specific times explicitly that the word vanity is used in the New Testament. The, the, the transliteration of the word uh, from Greek. And it's the word futility. Same word, meaningless, like smoke. And, and Paul says in Romans 8.20, Paul was an apostle. He pioneered the early church movement. And he says that the creation, everything under the sun, same idea, was subjected to meaninglessness, futility, not willingly. You know, no one in this room said, I want to, hi, God, can I have a meaningless life? Of, of all the lives, can I have one that, that doesn't satisfy? The creation itself um, has been subjected to this meaningless, not willingly, but listen, look at this, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Think about this. Paul is pointing to the gospel of Jesus revealed in the meaninglessness that you and I feel in this life. Why are things the way we, they are? They are the way they are because something called sin. I mean, at the root of the problem is sin. Is me and you wanting our elbow room from God. Naturally, in Adam. 
Same nature, same tendency, saying, God, I want life like Solomon had it without you. Sin. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. That sinful step was a break in the system that caused what was a fulfilling world, the Garden of Eden, to become what it is today. A broken world. A world subjected by, the, by the, even the, the justice of God to futility. But God's saying here, it's that way so that you might lift your eyes and look for something more. It's actually the grace of God in your and my life when we are left empty. That's God's grace. Think about that. Like right now you're going, I feel kind of empty. God loves you. He loves you so much that he's allowing you to understand what life would be like without him. So that in your state, you do nothing but cry out and reach for him. C.S. Lewis said it this way, If I find in my heart desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. That's the only other conclusion. You see, I'm I'm subjected in this vanity, but it's, it's subjected towards hope. There's hope here. Hope, and I'll invite the band out as we close on this thought. This is such an important thought. Um, This hope, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's who we're here to celebrate. It's who we're here to worship. It's who we leave this place thinking about. Because Jesus is our hope. Notice the contrast. Solomon goes, I've tried accomplishment. I've tried achievement, I've tried acquirement, I've tried amusement, I've tried attainment. Have you tried Jesus? Jesus is our hope. We've been subjected to this meaninglessness in hope of Jesus. Now, this is what we call the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. This man, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, was actually on a rescue mission to restore your joy, to satisfy your heart. To bring you back into a relationship with God that your sin has cut you off from. And one of those repercussions of broken relationship with God is this constant emptiness. And the tendency is to kind of stumble around in the dark for something to fill it. The gospel says this. God saw you in that state. He sees you in that state. And because he loves you with such a great love, he sent himself. In the person, the the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus. And Jesus was God becoming a man. This is crazy. Think about this. Entering into the futility of life. Entering into a world of meaningless. God left heaven and he came under heaven. And the gospel actually tells us this. That this Jesus who did that for you... In going to a cross, as he was doing that, he was actually laying aside all these great privileges he had. I mean, Solomon knew a lot. Solomon had a lot of pleasure. He had a lot of accomplishments, and he acquired a lot of things. He became a lot of things. It doesn't compare to the one who's greater than Solomon, Jesus. Jesus knows it all. He's omniscient. He's God. Pleasure? You know where he sits? At the right hand. You know what Psalm says? That it's at God's right hand that there's pleasures forevermore. Jesus was in relationship with God. What has he accomplished? I I don't know, creating the whole known universe? That's a pretty big accomplishment. What has he owned? Everything. You, me, all, all of it. It's all his. 
What has he achieved? Well, he's God. And he, looking at your life, looking at my life, seeing the emptiness that it is, listen, the Bible says he chose to empty himself. He chose to enter our emptiness, to lay those privileges aside, to be a man, and then ultimately to deal with the very root of our emptiness by going to a cross where the Bible says upon that cross, Jesus who knew no sin, he not only became our emptiness, he became our sin on the cross. He became our sin so that you and I, through looking to Jesus as our Savior who has died and has risen again, conquering even death, as we look to Jesus, we trust in him, we become the righteousness of God. You become forgiven. Do you know what it's like to have that load off your back? To have the one whose whose opinion mattered most to be in your favor? To forgive you, for God to forgive you of your sin? That's the gospel. Jesus became sin so that we could become his righteousness. But listen to this. The gospel is also that Jesus became our emptiness. So that we could be satisfied in him. So that we could come to the end of our ropes of looking in this world for stuff to give us what only God can. So that we could be reaching out in hope today. So I I pray that over us. I pray that over you. I, I pray that as you go out today, you go out as someone who's closer in your grasp of God. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulschurch.com.